0: Father, as we take our Bibles in our hands now, we open them, we reflect upon these great realities and truths, the history of mankind, and the story of how you have pursued us and sought us out and restored relationship with us even when we were undeserving and worthy of your wrath. Please challenge us, Lord, as we listen, as we sit quietly before you and we receive from our Bibles and challenge our hearts to think clearly about what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian in this day and age. Father, help us to have humble hearts. Help us to receive your word to recognize the authority of Moses and the prophets. We commit ourselves, Lord, to the hearing and then to the living out of the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, dedicating this time to you. Amen. Well, did you have your worldview confronted and conflicted this week in any way? Let me ask that question again so you can think about what I said. Did you have your worldview confronted and conflicted in any way this week? I did. Happened a number of times, and I'll just share one. I have for the homepage on my computer, my laptop that's on my desk, I have my homepage just set to the Yahoo News. And there are always... promoting different stories and items. A lot of it is a total waste of time and uh, just information that nobody really needs. But one item caught my eye in a little box with a picture, and it was that the world's fossil of the world's largest snake was found recently. Did you see that headline? In case you missed it, here's a picture of it uh, that now, nobody was there, but um, they said this about it. And I read the article, and since I'm talking about creation and, and Genesis and, and uh, uh, how all the living things came to be on the earth, it was very interesting to me that in a coal mine down in Columbia, South America, this, I don't know when exact date was, I think earlier in February, in an open pit coal mine, they unearthed, some interesting bones. Now, we know that there's fossilized bones all around the world. Okay, took millions and millions of years for them to get there. That's not true, but I couldn't resist saying it because that's where my worldview was conflicted as I looked at this news item. Here's what they said. Fossilized remains, and there really was fossilized bones there, of a 42-foot-long, 2,500-pound snake was discovered in northeastern Columbia, South America, and it represents the biggest snake that was ever found, scientists say. Researchers were led by a guy named Jason Head of the University of Toronto in Canada, and they estimate the snake, which they named Titanoboa, Titanoboa, large boa, Titanoboa Sarangonesis, because it was found in, that's kind of the name of the city, I don't know what it is, Sarangones, lived, this is where I'm reading and they're presenting to me the information. They found the bones and he lived 58 million to 60 million years ago, the BBC reported. Now I thought to myself, I wonder, you know, some guy's running a backhoe in a in an open mine coal pit, strip mining. And all of a sudden, he seems some, something kind of funny. This happens around here in our limestone. It wasn't too long ago that Joe Palmer, he's here somewhere, you can ask him about it. There he is back there. He said to me, Pastor Van, we found some fossils and some, I think, did you say fossils or bones? I can't remember. Some fossils right down here in, in Northern Virginia in the limestone, I imagine is what it is. Is it, Huh? Okay, I don't even know what that is, but a certain kind of stone in northern Virginia? I ought to get my information before I get in the pulpit, shouldn't I? And Joe said to me, Pastor Van, it's pretty neat. They, they unearthed fossils here. And this is quite common. And so some guy's running his backhoe or whatever they're strip mining with, and he sees something kind of funny, and he jumps down, and he gets down there. And this is what's going through my mind. Was there some kind of a, like a, A plastic cinch around the bone with a little label that said lived 65 billion years ago. How do they know it lived 65 billion years ago? And this is where the rub comes in, isn't it? And I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7 as we pick up Genesis again and we're continuing this morning in somewhat of an unusual kind of message wherein we're, we're asking some questions about our worldview, and we're asking some questions about science and the Bible, and namely it is this, does science destroy the credibility of the Bible? Does what we learn through science in the natural world undermine the authority of Scripture? Or does what we see in the natural world fit in with the timelines of Scripture? Now, scientists are great at picking information out of the air like this, and this is where the worldview comes in. Think about it. If you have a worldview where there is no God and my box here of nothing, somehow out of my box of nothing, a big bang occurred, and all of a sudden, nothing plus all kinds of time all of a sudden, equals everything, then you've got to come up with some explanation as to where everything came from, how does it exist, how does it work, how can complexities like animals function? And so you come up with a schematic that totally leaves God out of the picture because when you put your glasses on every day, you are at the center of your own universe and you, within your own mind, have to figure out how everything works. As a result... Our children are taught on a regular basis, and if you're not alert, you will see on a regular basis evolution simply taught as fact. It's a huge theory. They have no idea if it lived 65 billion years ago. It is presented as fact. What does that do to the mind of an 11-year-old watching, looking at some news items that their teacher showing them or looking at a, a PBS science special on creation and evolution? Scientists say... Scientists say, so it must be true. I in no way want to undermine the sciences. I have high regard for the sciences. I would encourage you to challenge your children to consider being a creation scientist. We need boys and girls to grow up, to be mathematicians and scientists, and to uncover the marvels of God's wonderful creation. But what are we doing to their worldview? Here it is as fact. Now, we wake up in the morning, at least I do, and I say, as Pastor Ev said, this is the day the Lord has made. I don't always say I'll rejoice in it, but this is is God's world. He's the one who created it, and when I put my glasses on every day, I'm seeing through the grid of biblical creationism. So therefore, I have to ask myself some questions. When I read my Bible like Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7 and next week we'll go to chapter 8 and we'll leave questions from science alone knowing that we've barely scratched the surface but trying to just challenge your thinking a little bit here. And Some of you have never been exposed to biblical creationism and you've been ed- highly educated in the realm of the naturalistic evolution of the secular education system of our world. And so I just wanted to challenge you a little bit two weeks ago and then today. And so when we move on, we'll be moving right on into Genesis and the history after the flood and the repopulation of the earth. And we can't help but read this stuff and we say, okay, then if the scientist is discovering dinosaur bones, how come I don't see dinosaurs in the Bible? If the scientist is showing me that there was a such thing as an ice age, where does it fit in the Bible? And if the scientist is showing me that he can put bones together, real bones together, and assemble them, and there's no other identification than some kind of a Neanderthal that we might name Lucy or something, although I don't think Lucy's in the Neanderthal camp, then isn't it true that there's some kind of a... Link between animals and humans. What about cavemen after all? We see their writings on the inside of cave walls. Where in the Bible does that fit? And what happens to our young people? Well, they don't want to admit it in Sunday school, but by the time they get to 11th grade physics and biology, advanced biology classes, and by the time they head off to university for intro to philosophy and worldviews and, and intro to to biology and world sciences, they get thrashed. Because, why? Because the worldview, evolutionist worldview scientist, presents things in such a way that, that I have no answer for them because it's not in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to pretend to know that I have all the answers. What I want to show here this morning, though, is I want to ask a few more questions, namely about dinosaurs, the Ice Age, and cavemen. Because I think it's very legitimate to ask ourselves, where in the grid or the timeline of Scripture does that stuff fit? And is there any evidence in creation science for these things to be substantiated? Or do I have to leave a hole in my brain where I leave a big question mark that suggests that maybe the scientists know more than I know and maybe 65 billion years is Realistic And somehow the Bible is just about spiritual things and the physical scientific things will leave to the real scientists. Well, let's review where we've been just briefly. We've talked about the flood. And we you'll see a picture here. We've been talking about questions about Noah's flood. Namely, was it local or was it universal? And one of the things that we're talking about in our questions about the flood is, how could there have been this much water? And we've tried to answer some of these questions. And was the ark a seaworthy vessel? And did the ark really have the capacity to hold all the animals out of which sprang all the other animals of the world that we know of? Are there good answers to that? And I hope you realize that there are good answers, and we've touched upon some of those things. We asked the question, how could worldwide species have gotten over somewhere in the Middle East to get on the ark, like kangaroos from Australia? And then we realize, when we open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7, that though these questions are not specifically asked and answered, we recognize that there was this incredibly cataclysmic event where it is easy to conclude that everything changed. And when we have our Bible glasses on and we look at the fossil record, for example, and we see tropical trees petrified in Siberia and we see um, you know, mammoths with tropical-type vegetation in their mouth up in the Arctic frozen in the ice, we recognize that there must have somewhere been a huge climactic shift. And what answers that? multiple ice ages that happened about every 40 million years up to a hundred ice ages that took place over hundreds of millions of years when we dig down and we see the layers of sedimentary rock with billions of dead things as Ken Ham would say billions of dead things laid down by water buried in rock layers laid down by water that's exactly what we see and we have to say to ourselves that fits beautifully The very nature of what a cataclysmic universal flood would cause. It was interesting this week for me to read some of our leading Christian apologists who are holding now to a localized flood theory. I find that hard to comprehend. A number of Very well-educated men, men like Dr. Hugh Ross, way smarter than Pastor Van. But when I look at my Bible, and when I see what it says, and will you look at Genesis chapter 7? And let's just pick it up at verse 11 of Genesis chapter 7, and we're still kind of just reviewing where we've been a little bit. The animals have all come in, and we think there's reasonable credible evidence that all this could have worked exactly the way the Bible says. Not even to, to, And then to speak of also the miraculous involvement of God, but 7-11 of Genesis, and let's just read a little bit. What does the Bible say? In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, look, there was an exact day, you could track the day. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. And the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And on that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. By the way, stop and listen just a minute. In case you were in the second service two weeks ago, I was told after the service that I said, Noah and his four sons were on the ark. I know that it was Noah and his three sons. That was uh, just a... Freudian there. And I was thinking of four men and their wives on the ark, I guess. But I wanted to correct that. That was not the case. Uh, There was just Noah and his three sons. And here it is, verse 13, chapter 7, Genesis. Now verse 14. And they had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with Wings, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Now look, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And the question right now is this. When you read the rest of this passage, is there anything at all in your mind that speaks of a localized Mesopotamian flood? What does it say? For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. And the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than twenty feet. Everything Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. I want to suggest to you, and I don't want to minimize anybody's education or anybody's ability to think things through at a way higher level than I can think them through, but I would like to suggest that the reason some of our leading Christian apologists like Dr. Ankerberg and and Dr. Hugh Ross and some of these evangelical leaders are moving over to a localized flood theory is because they are also building into their grid millions of years. You can go to their websites and read it. And why are they building into their system millions of years? There's only one reason. The reason is, is because the secular scientist has taught it and taught it and taught it, and we are intimidated to say, the Bible says this. Okay? Okay? Now, I don't want to take a a simplistic uh, or any kind of a pseudo-intellectual approach here. I am not a scientist. And I am a, a, a stammering, stumbling infant theologian. But I think that words mean something. And it's interesting to me that leading apologists and scientists in the evangelical world are shifting over I believe at the heart of the matter is an intimidation because they don't want to be overlooked in the scientific world as not credible because they're just Bible believers. But they still maintain in the Gospels that Jesus walked on water. That Jesus raised the dead. That the apostles raised the dead. That Jesus rose from the dead. Listen, there's no scientific explanation for any of that. How come somebody needs a scientific explanation for the first chapters of Genesis when they don't need it for the New Testament? To me, that's an incongruity in your, in, in your logic. What are you going to explain? That there's some kind of metaphysical thing that happened? And Jesus, the, the water filmed over, and Jesus could walk on the water. And that certain certain uh, electronic forces in the atmosphere created with lightning and certain things creates the molecular locking together of water. And there was just the right moment with the uh, acidity of the water and the chemical content of the water, and you could make it work out. And Peter got out of the boat, and for a minute he walked. But then all of a sudden the thunders and the lightning wiped all that out. And so, you, no, there is not a natural explanation for everything. You've got to be really careful about forcing those things together. The plain reading of Scripture is clear, and that's what we had emphasized for a couple different weeks, is that we believe in a, le- a literal, universal worldwide flood under which the entire surface of the earth was covered. In verse 11, it says that on that 17th day of the second month. And next week, we'll talk a little bit more about what time of year it was and why God dates it even. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heaven were open. And when you look at the geological record, it shows that there was a huge cataclysmic flood. It shows evidence of the fact that there had to have been dramatic change that was just absolutely incredible with volcanic eruptions and earthquakes and so forth that easily could have caused almost everything that we see in the geological record. This morning, though, I want to move on. And I want to ask ourselves about dinosaurs. I think there's a picture of a dinosaur. What about dinosaurs? Dinosaurs, the Ice Age, and cavemen. What's the biblical view on these things? And am I am I like a moron if I believe the Bible's true and then none of that is mentioned in there? Well, let's think for just a minute about what the secular scientists would tell us about dinosaurs. They would say that they lived about 265 million years ago and they evolved and, and, and there's, you can easily find charts of how dinosaurs evolved up and all kinds of things and that they ruled the earth and they were ferocious. And then that's where you get in conflicting information. It's pretty much in agreement with secular scientists that about 65 million years ago, dinosaurs all went extinct. All right? And this is where there's a lot of conflicting information. They don't know why they went extinct. They just know they did because we have the fossil record. I've seen the bones myself. I remember as a little boy being fascinated. Downtown Chicago at the Field Museum, when you walk in, the big... Um, na- Museum of Natural History and the big skeletal structure of these dinosaurs and so forth. Phenomenal. Reconstruction l- l- made out of some of the, the real bones and then, of course, matching up and being able to project what the rest of the animal looked like. And we actually have a pretty good idea of what dinosaurs looked like. Yes, they really lived. Yes, they were real. Yes, they roamed the earth. And by the way, let me stop right now and give a little commercial Parentheses. I am so pleased that we were able um, to connect with Buddy Davis of Answers in Genesis. And Buddy Davis is just the most humble old country boy you've ever seen. You know what he's done? He's gone all over the world looking for dinosaur bones. He spent extensive time up in the Yukon and up in, and above the Arctic Circle digging uh, frozen bones out of the ice. And Buddy Davis is the guy who, if you ever go to the Creation Museum in Kentucky, where Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis has their headquarters, Buddy Davis is a dinosaur sculptor. He does beautiful work. And this summer, July 26th, Mike Donnelly helped me connect up with these guys, and I appreciate that, Mike. But um, on Sunday, July 26th, Buddy Davis is going to be right here for both services and his topic of lecture for that morning is going to be dinosaurs, fact or fiction. You'll be fascinated. He'll give you way more information and better organized information than I'm giving you this morning. He's going to sing a little bit. He's the one who wrote the song that the children sang a few weeks ago. If there really was a worldwide flood, what would the evidence be? Billions of dead things, buried in rock layers, laid down by water, all over the earth. He wrote those songs, and he's a great singer, kind of a folksy country boy singer. He's just the most humble guy, and he's great. He's going to be here for Sunday morning. Then Sunday night, July 26th, we're going to have a carry-in picnic supper, and then Buddy's going to do a concert in the outdoor chapel. And then Monday morning, July 27th, is our week of day camp. Regular day camp launches that week. There will be over 200 children here. And we're, Buddy's going to stay until noon and he's going to do a session on creation and dinosaurs for the children right here, probably in the auditorium, so he can use the PowerPoint. It'll be a lot of fun, and I thought it was a perfect time to promo that right now. Now we go back to our sermon. <laughs> yes, dinosaurs are real. Yes, dinosaurs really lived. To give you just a little bit of information on it, it was in the 1820s that a guy over in England named, named Gideon Mantell found some unusual teeth and bones in a quarry. It was by 1841 that nine different types of these reptiles had been uncovered. It was a guy named Dr. Richard Owen, who was a British scientist, who named them Dinosauria. It was the first time, 1841, that the word dinosaur was used. That's why it was never mentioned in the Bible. The word wasn't invented until 1841. Dinosauria, and it means terrible lizard. Terrible lizard. That raises, then, some questions. If we have the bones, we have the fossil record for dinosaurs, then I want to ask four quick questions about them. Number one, when did they live? Number two, when did they die? Number three, were dinosaurs on the ark? And number four, did dinosaurs live on the earth after Noah's flood? Let's answer those questions quickly, if we can. We already know a little bit, as I was saying, 65 million years ago, the secular scientists would say that either asteroids, that's kind of the picture here, fell from outer space and hit the surface of the earth in such a way that it killed all the living animals and killed off the dinosaurs. Some people say that disease swept through them. Some people say they starved to death. There's all kinds of theories about what happened to dinosaurs. Nobody knows for sure. The question the biblical creationists would ask is when did they live? Well, let's, if you're still open in Genesis, let's flip back to Genesis chapter 1 and let's see what God says. Genesis chapter 1, begin with verse 24. Look what it says. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, Genesis 1, 24, livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You read on and you find out that this was day six of creation. Now, if you have your Bible glasses on and you're a Bible-believing Christian, you have no other option. Yes, dinosaurs are real. We can dig in the ground. We can find their bones. When were they created? They were created on day six of creation along with all the other wild animals of the earth. They were not then created... um, They did not evolve 240 billion years ago because now working our timeline backwards through biblical genealogy, even leaving significant gaps... The age of dinosaurs, as far as when did they live, has to be six to 10,000 years ago. If the biblical record is close to being accurate, and I suggest that it is, dinosaurs lived, following creation, on the face of the earth, six to 10,000 years ago, and men saw them. You say, but I thought they were ferocious, terrorizing animals. I would say that the change happened after the curse and that that could very well be, but I would say that a lot of that is speculative, what's been created in movies and and videos for kids. I think it's Tyrannosaurus Rex, and I'll bet you Buddy Davis will talk about it. He's the one with the big teeth and everything, and everybody, the little hands up here, and he's got the big tail and the big backside, and he gets you, right? And everybody says Tyrannosaurus Rex is such a meat-eater, and he was horrible, They've creation, Biblical creation scientists have looked at their skulls the more. And the more they look at his dental framework of his jaw, you know what they find out? That he had great big long teeth, but very shallow roots. And you know what they're speculating? There's no way that those big teeth would have been strong enough to be a meat-shredding, meat-ripping, fighting, ferocious animal that he was a vegetarian. And that his teeth were perfectly designed to go through thick foliage that we would find in... the the Garden of Eden and times after that, thick foliage all around the world where there was a much more uniform um, atmospheric temperature, vegetation, and those teeth were perfectly designed to get fruit and berries and leaves off the tree, and he was a vegetarian. You know what? I think that makes perfectly good sense. I have no problem with that. Nobody was there to see it. How come... Our view is the one that is an ignoramus view, and the scientist's view, who says it evolved out of nothing, is an intellectual view. I think they got it the other way around. A marvelous creator designed these marvelous animals, and they lived on the earth six to 10,000 years ago. They lived alongside people. When did dinosaurs die? We know that death and dying entered the world when... In Genesis chapter 3. Dinosaurs started to die after Genesis chapter 3, when everything else started to die. You say, how come there's so many dinosaur bones? And I think that is interesting, and I don't have all the uh, answers, and even biblical creationists have theories on some of these things. But doesn't it make sense? That if the earth begins to erupt and what you have is you have these fossils of bone structures and you have evidence of these animals that were living at certain levels and they're covered what? They were covered rapidly with mud. The flood theory makes way better sense that that would be a fossilizing agent. Rather than something dying and lying on the surface of the earth and waiting for dust to cover it after hundreds of years, yea, thousands of years, yea, millions of years, and finally it fossilized. I would suggest that with the model, and it's very interesting, you could look this up later, with the Mount St. Helens model that happened in uh, uh, Oregon, is that Washington State? Washington State, and the Mount St. Helens model and other models that fossilization happens way more rapidly than what secular scientists suggest. The flood is a perfect illustration of something being covered rapidly with mud, certain levels of decay, but then the sedimentary seals around it and when the right soil content was available, the bones fossilized. The dinosaurs died off in the flood worldwide except for how many? At least two of enough kinds to produce all the other kinds after they got off the ark. Were the dinosaurs on the ark? Yes. You say, how did they fit? Some of them were 80 tons. The answer to that is they just took little baby ones. Also, many dinosaurs full-grown are only the size of kitty cats and dogs. They're small. Only a few of them were huge. That doesn't strain the intellect, does it? Why wouldn't you take a juvenile dinosaur on the ark instead of a full-grown one? Did dinosaurs live after the flood? I think the answer is yes. They got off the ark, they lived on the earth, they began to reproduce. Let's turn in our Bibles to Job chapter 40, and let's see if we don't see if Job, and many Bible students believe that this is the oldest book in the Bible. It's possible that. The first 11 chapters of Genesis were written first. I believe Moses probably wrote it and not Adam and his direct descendants, as some speculate. But Job lived pre-Abraham. And in Job chapter 40, do you remember this story where God and Job are having this long conversation? God is saying to Job... Is anything greater than I am? And to put an image in Job's mind of things that are massive and great that Job could relate to, God suggests two beasts that nobody knows what they are. And neither do I, so don't hold your breath. They're transliterated from the Hebrew. And so one is called behemoth, and the other is called Leviathan. So let's just read for just a minute, and you tell me what you think they are. Let's begin right at verse 15. Remember, God is holding up a comparison to himself. If you think this is great, how much greater am I? Is his point. Look at Behemoth, verse 15, Job 40, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. See, it was a vegetarian. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are like tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The hills bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plant he lies. Hidden among the reeds in the marsh, he dwelt in low-lying wet areas. The lotuses conceal him in their shadows. He stayed in the thick reeds. The poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. Why? Because he's so big. He is secure, through the jo- though the Jordan should surge against his mouth can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? In other words, you see how great behemoth is? Behemoth, by the way, is a transliteration. It just means giant beast. God is evidently talking about something that Job has seen with his own eyes. And he's saying, Job, you know the giant beast, behemoth. Now, it's interesting, and flash the next slide, it's interesting that a lot of Bible teachers, and in, even in my NIV, look. What I don't know about you, but I have a notation, and I have almost no notations. I have a, a thin-line, large-print NIV with almost no notation. But I noticed on this passage that there is a letter, little letter A up by Behemoth, and down in the bottom of the page, letter A, verse 15, it says, possibly the hippopotamus or the elephant. Now we do know that it has to have big legs because it can't be an alligator or a crocodile type animal because it talked about how huge its legs are. That would fit a hippopotamus or an elephant. The big mouth that's not afraid of the river water, if it's talking about the largeness of its mouth or is it talking about a long neck and it can get its mouth above the water? I don't know. But my point is, I don't think you're weird if you think this is a dinosaur i think this beautifully describes a dinosaur and i think as it was put here it says his tail sways like a cedar a hippo doesn't have that kind of tail an elephant doesn't have that kind of tail and i think that job and god are talking about i wrote it down here i don't know anything about dinosaurs brachiosaurus i think is the one is that right starts with a b I don't know. It doesn't matter. There's all kinds of books written about it, and Buddy Davis will tell you all about it. July 26th. Did I tell you Buddy Davis is coming? We read on in Job chapter 41, and he also mentions, then look at this. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook? Or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? He's talking about how big and powerful he is. Skip down to verse 12. He's still talking about it. Well, I like verse 11. Let's read it. Who has a claim against me, Job, that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me, Job. Verse 12. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength, and his graceful form, Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth, His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined, and they are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as a rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect. Nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw, and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Slingstones stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a tail in the mud like a threshing sledge. Another note down at the bottom of mine says, possibly a crocodile. It could be, and I'm not mocking anybody. But when I think of the reproductions of dinosaurs and and how they speculate dinosaurs must have been, I think you've got some dragon-like animal here. You say, well, what about that fire breathing? I I really don't know. I I don't know. I just think it's some kind of ferocious animal, and I know I don't think it's a crocodile because you can take a crocodile and take a knife and stick his underbelly. And here it says his underbelly is hard as a rock and that arrows don't hurt him. Some kind of dinosaur, isn't it? Now, nobody really knows who Behemoth and Leviathan are. But is it far fetched to imagine that Job saw these animals and that other living people saw them? And we don't talk very much in our public schools about the dinosaur tracks in the rock down in Texas with footprints in the rock beside it, do we? The huge three toed. You say, well, what made the dinosaurs die then? And very quickly, let's answer our other two questions as we answer that extra question. Our first question today was about dinosaurs. And we wanted to ask ourselves, are they part of the biblical record? If so, when did they live? When did dinosaurs die? Were dinosaurs on the ark? Did dinosaurs live after the flood? The answer is yes two other questions that I wanted to answer and I just skim over them and we'll move on to chapter 8 next week where does an ice age fit in click the next slide please there really was an ice age yes there really was quickly ask this question what would it take what would it take to make an ice age i thought it was interesting I was thinking, if you ask a kid today if there was an ice age, they'd say, yeah, there's two of them, and I saw them both on DVD. (laughs) Clearly, scientists can observe the evidence of extensive glacial activity and ice movements where today there is no ice. The picture that you see right now is Wallawa Lake in Oregon. And I'm no geologist, but what you clearly see on the edge of the picture up here is is where it's not real clear to see but it's a dam up at the top part where it's horseshoe shaped it's called a moraine it's from the glacial ice that pushed all the rock and rubble and created a dam and then when the climate changed the ice melted and a lake was there we have all kinds of evidences up in the northwest and in montana where huge lakes were formed by these glacial movements in the ice and the moraines, and then when the water melted, and you have also you have evidences where these dam walls would break and then you had huge washing away and you had here huge cuts and, and caverns that were formed. Let me ask you a question. What does it take to make an ice age? Well I'm no climatologist, but let's suggest that to have an ice age I don't think it's far-fetched to think that you need all kinds of moisture. Why do you need all kinds of moisture? Because it's got to freeze. Ice is made out of water. Where's it going to come from? And if we had this huge volcanic activity and earthquake activity during the flood, what do you now have? It's what you also need to have an ice age. It's what's also in the ice of Antarctica and, and, and the Arctic and Greenland volcanic ash. Why volcanic ash? Because we know for sure that huge bursts of volcanic ash do what? It filters the sun rays and it cools the surface of the earth. Biblical creationists, in short, believe that the ice age, and that there was only probably one main ice age, and that it happened about 500 years after the flood. It happened in the northern regions of the globe as we know it mostly, and that people like Job and others who lived in the Mesopotamian region, where the earth was beginning to repopulate, simply had not spread out far enough to be impacted by those ice ages. Is it far-fetched to think that volcanic activity, climate change, seasons now implemented huge volume of moisture in the air created snowfall created year after year of a colder climate colder climate and that it actually and before all that changed you had vast regions covered with ice and those big glaciers shifted and moved and the evidence is clear surely there was once again it's not preposterous or ridiculous or even foolish in fact it fits beautifully with the testimony of scripture that some kind of an ice age could have happened following the flood Finally, what about cavemen? Uh, Flip the next screen. Let me show you. This is really fun to look at. The P-38s of the Lost Squadron up in Greenland. Flip the next one. They went and recovered them in in started in the 80s and in the early 90s. There was a World War II fleet of planes that headed over to Europe, they turned around in a snowstorm, ended up crash-landing altogether. There was a couple of bombers and a bunch of P-38s, and they landed in Greenland, and all I wanted to illustrate here was this, that when they went to find them, they expected them to be heaped over with snow and ice, but they never dreamed that they would be 250 feet below the surface of the ice. Why would they have never dreamed that? Because we have been taught by secular scientists that for that much ice to accumulate, it takes hundreds, if not thousands, 10,000, 100,000 years for ice to accumulate. The P-38s in 50 years had, were 250 feet below ice. I thought that was interesting. What's the next slide? Do I have any more? Oh, you can learn about the ice age right there. Finally, our last question, and then we'll leave. What about cavemen? Say, yeah, Pastor Van, what about cavemen? You cannot, here's my short answer. You cannot overstate the nonsense about cavemen. There is no evidence You have this. You have have creative imaginations that take little bone chips and create huge structures. The evidence is so sparse. Little bone chips and they create a whole skull. There is an embarrassing record to be documented, and it's documented in a hugely embarrassing record of fraudulent cases, lies, a pig's tooth that they build a a skull out of, And one one after the other after the other, we find out it's just fraudulent stuff. Why do we have to have it? We have to have missing links, don't we? Also, you have erroneous conclusions about primitive tools. Here's what the secular scientists, geologists will do. And I know we're out of time, but just listen closely. They'll be wandering around Africa somewhere, and they will find tools in the desert. Go ahead and flip the next screen. I think it's just a picture. Flip, uh, they'll find tools and they'll pick up a stone axe or a stone knife. And you know what a secular anthropologist will do? He will say, this is where primitive people lived. This is where intermediate stage people lived. How do they know? Because this is the kind of tool that they used. But then if you get in your jeep and you drive around, you can find people today who are using almost the exact same tool. You can't do that. You can't do that. And so cavemen are just nonsense. Cavemen are a figment of the imagination forced into being by the secular humanist scientist because he has to create a link between animal life and human life. And it's nonsense. It's not in the Bible. What about people who wrote on caves? All kinds of nomadic people lived all over the place, and they lived in caves, yes. Did they drag their women around by hair? By their hair. They might have. They were wrong if they did. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Do you remember reading Luke 16 for our scripture reading? Luke 16 this morning for our scripture reading? Let's turn that in reverse. Do you remember the story Jesus said about the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man? He didn't care about eternal things. And now he finds himself in Hades, in hell. And there's this conversation that goes on and he looks across the great gulf fixed over into paradise. And he sees the poor man, Lazarus, who begged for food under his table. And he's in comfort... This guy's in extreme torment. He didn't have time to think about this stuff when he was alive. Now it's too late. You know what he begs for? He begs for someone to go back from the dead to tell his brothers. Did you catch what Jesus said? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe somebody who comes back from the dead. Listen to me closely, especially young people. Do not doubt or be dismayed about your Bible. God says, Moses and the prophets are truth. And even if we could have somebody go back in time and show us that there was a flood, and if we could produce the ark, for example, based upon the Luke 16 principle, they still wouldn't believe it. You cannot logic people into it. Live your faith with confidence. Don't doubt your Bible. You're not an ignoramus if you believe Dinosaurs and the ice age and fossils all can fit in the scriptural record. It can and it does and it makes totally good sense. Let's pray. Will you stand with me and we'll be dismissed after prayer. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives and the change that the Bible brings us. And Lord, we know that there's a, a renewed mind that we need as well and we're so easily pressed into the mold of the world and we don't want to be antagonistic, we don't want to be foolish, we don't want to miss the obvious. But Lord, help us to not esteem secular science above sacred scripture. Help us to recognize that, that it was through Jesus Christ that by Him and for Him all things were created and without Him nothing was made that was made. Thank you for... Uh, the good minds of men around us and organizations like the Institute for Creation Research and Answers in Genesis that can just uh, take time to focus and give us some good thoughts on how these things fit in the pattern of Scripture. More than that, though, thank you that you are an all-powerful, almighty, miracle-performing God, and nothing is too hard for you. And so, Lord, we commit our lives to you this morning and help us to live for you this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.